Mark Hicks is going to read the passage for us this morning. If you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, 2 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 5. May God bless the reading of his word. And what a bizarro word that is, right? I completely forgot that that little narrative was even in the Bible as I was reading through David's life three, four times to prepare for this week, and it just stuck with me. It would not let me go. One of those passages that is begging to be preached. This sermon had several versions. This very unknown narrative between two much greater known narratives. What happened there? As I prayed through it and studied it, trying to discern what really went down there, I imagine this. An Ammonite wrestles an Israelite to the ground and straddles him. The Israelite writhes and fights to break free, but it's no use. His hands are tied. His feet are bound with ropes that burn. He stills suddenly when he sees the glistening razor in the Ammonite's hand, yet with his honor on the line, he flings his head about and tries to break free. Maybe he can headbutt him or bite him. So a second Ammonite has to come over and hold his head tight like a vice. And then the Israelite realizes what's about to happen, his beard. The sign of his manhood. To be an Israelite man without a beard is to be castrated. There is no way this is happening without a fight. Yet, one by one, each man in this envoy is humiliated. Half of his beard scraped away. No longer a man, not a woman. But before the Ammonite cuts the Israelites' hands free to flee, he cuts his tunic just below the waist. You can see them, can't you? This Ammonite crowd that's gathered around the envoy, mocking, laughing at them. Ha! You are no longer men of Yahweh. You are genderless laughingstock. Then they kick them free to flee and send them off emasculated and defeated, essentially mooning the countryside of the southern Levant. Over a misunderstanding, no less. 
David was attempting to extend kindness to this next generation of Ammonites in return for some mysterious kindness the previous king had bestowed upon him. But it's confused. It's interpreted for malintent, and so the Ammonites react and pour shame like lava over this envoy. And now David has a choice. What is he going to do? He could choose option one. Shame for shame. Retaliation. He knew that well. Just a couple chapters prior, chapter 8, a more familiar story where David had defeated the Moabites. Already won. Already defeated. And he lays them down in the dirt. That's what humiliation means. Ground dirt. And he measures them with a cord. Remember that story? Two cord lengths, you die. Third cord length, live. Lengths, you die. Third quarter length, you live. David's game of random shame that wrote upon their souls, you are no longer those strong cedar trees that erupt from the ground. No, you are the ground. Easily blown away by the wind. David could do that. He knew its power. Shame's force to cover that's what shame means, to cover. It's very different from guilt. Guilt whispers in the wind, you did something bad. But shame shouts in the fog, you are bad. Guilt, it, it's this whisper that pricks our ear and entices us to change course, that ruach in the wind that woos us back to the heart of God. But shame, shame is a siren who suffocates, lays upon us without our consent. Shame shows up when we have done nothing wrong and attempts to rename us, forcing upon us a new identity. This isn't getting caught at the office with your fly down. No, shame sticks around. In fact, neurologically, we know that shame can remain within our brain for years as if the event is yet ongoing. David could do that. He had the means, the power, the history, shame for shame. Or option two, hide. See, if shame does not spur us to seek revenge, it lures us to hide away. The new name that we are christened under shame is so repulsive. The child named Hitler cannot be scrubbed away or removed that we take cover. The most known scars for shame are apathy, isolation, anxiety, nightmares, suicidal ideation, and attempt, all of which push us further and further underground. You know the feeling. That's why you remember the name of the boy on the school bus who spit spitballs in your hair every day in elementary school. He renamed you. You are not popular. That's why you try so hard to please everybody. That song your dad wrote upon your soul titled, You Are Insufficient. You might still sing it. It's got lyrics like, why can't you throw like your brother? And just 
let me do it, you're so slow, we're never going to get out of here. Shame. It's got a lasting effect when it strikes in our childhood, but it's just as damaging in our adulthood. It's why your whole demeanor changed for the better when that guy at the office was fired. Your superior, the one that would cuss you out on a whim and mock your work in front of everybody. It's why you can tell me the song the band was playing at the bar that night when he got aggressively too close and whispered foul jokes in your ear just to watch you squirm. They renamed you. Put that name tag on the back of your shirt that says, Hello, my name is Collateral Joke. That's why I can tell you his ball cap was blue. The dad who leaped off the bleachers at that practice baseball field and ran over to scoop up his little blonde hair, blue-eyed girl who was playing in the dirt with sticks, laughing with my middle son, who happens to be African-American. And he scowled at him and looked at his girl and said, we don't play with boys. And his shame was my shame, and their shame was David's shame, because we are family. And the temptation to strike shame for shame is overwhelming. And yet, without thinking, I surrendered to option two. Hide, grab him. We went to get ice cream because maybe he didn't notice. Maybe he slipped out from under that suffocating fog that shouted, you are the wrong color. But a year or so later, when he was about uh, seven, he refused to get out of the minivan when we went to the park. Mom, he said, can we just go home? There's a lot of white people here, and you're the only white person I trust not to hurt my heart. Shame found its mark after all, and all this little boy wanted to do was hide. That's what shame does. It keeps wounding long after the initial hit. It covers until we take cover and we take cover under the cover under the cover until we forget who we are. So what does David choose? Shame for shame, more blood upon his hands or hide? There's got to be some other option, right? Some third righteous option there in the middle and there is for guilt, there is for embarrassment, and we try to force shame into that space and treat her as such. Rename shame, embarrassment. Just get over it. Just brush it off. It's no big deal. What's wrong with you? You're stronger than that. I know lots of people who've been through those things. Just, just fluff it off. But, ooh, shame gets insulted when we try to call her by another name. She retaliates. You can't just fluff me off. Who do you think I am? Embarrassment? And in revenge, she renames us further when we can't just get over it. You are weak. See, all of this just-get-over-it-ness is to deny who shame is, a formidable 
foe. And David understood this. It's why he used it as an effective military tactic. I dare say he empathetically carried that envoy's shame within him as I carry the shame of my children and you do your loved ones upon you. He knew it could not be blown away like a dandelion in the breath of a toddler. So what does he say? Option two. Go, abide, hide in Jericho. You know, when I first read that, I thought, well, this is a broken chord in David's hallelujah. In fact, the first sermon I wrote that ended up in the trash can really focused on the rest of chapter 10, at least through 19, that this battle, and I was all ready to paint David as this terrible person, because that's what some of us like to do. He went to war. You read the rest of chapter 10, and the Ammonites and the Israelites had this great battle. See, David chose retaliation, more blood upon his hands, but, but the passage just wouldn't prove my sermon right. Don't you hate it when that happens? The text won't let you write the sermon you want to write. Because when you read the rest of it, though the Ammonites and the Israelites go to battle, it's not because of what happened in 1 through 5. The Ammonites keep moving in and moving in, and David pulls back, but eventually he has to defend Israel, and it could have been over anything. No, 1 through 5 is a separate section, and David deals with 1 through 5 with hiding. Go. Abide in Jericho until your beards have grown back and then come home. Don't hide away to die, but hide away to heal. And it's a crucial difference. Maybe sort of that third option. Abide in Jericho. What beautiful, wise words. And not just for Old Testament, late Bronze Age nerds like me. I mean, this is beautiful. Abide in Jericho. Hide yourself in the ruins of the city where God fulfilled his promises to us. Cover yourself in the rocks of enemy walls that God fell in victory. Remember Rahab who decided she wanted a new name, daughter of Yahweh, abide in Jericho. Listen to Joshua's echo reverberate from behind the stone. Be strong and courageous. Hide for a time with God until the memory of who you are resurrects you from the dirt that created our story as the people of God and then come home. It's beautiful. See, hiding away only results in healing when it lands in we actually remembering who we are. I had the pleasure of studying under Bob Mulholland at Asbury when I was in seminary before he passed away. He, uh, he wrote Invitation to a Journey, and I'll accredit these next couple sentences to him. Because Bob would say that we, especially in the West, have a bad habit of establishing our identity, who we are, by what we do, by what we have, or by what other people think of us. 
But really, it's got to be the other way around. What we do must flow from who we are, not what we do establishing who we are. And it's the same message Paul gave the church in Colossae in chapter 3. He told them in 3.12, You who are chosen, holy, and beloved, do these things. We have to claim that. We have to own that. This is who you are. You who are chosen. If you allow the enemy to rename you by what you do, your career, your hobby, your acts of service, your expert parenting, then shame has a false name to suffocate and leave you near death. You who are holy. If you allow the enemy to rename you by what you have, your citizenship, your degrees, your home on the hill, then shame has a false name to kick out from underneath you and leave you writhing. You who are beloved, if the enemy convinces you that you are who you are by what other people think of you, well, my mom says I'm funny and my church says I'm wise, then shame has a false name to disintegrate and leave you empty. And no amount of hiding away is going to lead to healing. We have to accept this truth about who we are. Repeat it after me. We are chosen. We are holy. We are beloved. Because of the one who is chosen and holy and beloved perfectly so but isn't it interesting that even Jesus was not immune to the talons of shame his garments too were torn and his body exposed he too was bound and humiliated he was forced to carry his own chopped down lynching tree through the valley of the shadow of death and lie on his back in the dirt. A literal sign hung above his head that ironically renamed him, you are the king of the Jews. And you add to all that shame, our shattered false names, and you have the bloodied emblem of shame and yes. When we look at him, all that indignity and violence and blood and nakedness and poverty and disgust, we see beauty. We see the most beautiful person we have ever seen. The shame, it just doesn't stick to him. We see straight through it to see who he is. The chosen one, the holy one, the beloved of God. So why don't we apply that same measure of grace to ourselves? Because it's who we are by he who abides in us. You know, when I was 14... I'll end with this story. I went on my first mission trip to Jamaica, and we were deep in the bush there, and, and we went to this hostel, and uh, we were supposed to bring joy 
to them, encouragement to them. And they were in this long, rectangular, open-aired building, the poorest of the poor, basically sent there to die. And, you know, there I was, I who was a leader in my youth group, who have a blue passport, whose mother said she was funny and elders said she was wise. But I walked in and I was immediately suffocated by all the shame, the thin nightgowns, the dirt floors, the smell of urine, the sounds of dementia. It just overwhelmed me, and every pore within me was just exuding, pouring this shame like lava over these people. You were poor. You have nothing. And the whole world looks at you and says, you are forgotten. You are without a purpose. What am I going to do? I, I couldn't control it in, in my youth. So I said, well, I'll just go bed to bed and I'll, I'll hold their hand as they laid in these aluminum cots. I'll just hold a hand and say, God loves you and go to the next one. God loves you and go to the next one. God loves you and maybe they won't see the shame that I'm pouring upon them. God loves you. God loves you. It became very robotic because I was so overwhelmed. And I looked, and there was a baby crib off on the far end. And I thought, oh, I can do that. A baby. I can just rock a baby. So I went there, made my way through, put my hand in that baby crib. Made no sense. But maybe the baby would hold my hand, but the baby didn't because it was an old woman. And she didn't hold my hand because she didn't have any arms. And she didn't have any legs. And her hair was out to here, and her eyes were completely covered with cataracts, so she couldn't see me. She just smiled and rocked back and forth. And I was frozen with my hand there. God loves you. God loves you. And I heard this squeak, shuffle, squeak shuffle coming up from behind me and I turned around and it was another patient who lived there, a very tall woman and she too had hair out to here and she grabbed my arm and spun me around and I thought this is it, she's going to punch me in the nose. Deservedly, she's found me out. She glared at me. She had a little bit of a beard growing in and her nightgown was open in the back, exposing the room. And she grabbed my arm, and she glared at me, and you know what she said to me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. She sang amazing grace to me. And when she did, my vision transformed. I didn't see a woman who was poor and naked with dementia that the world had forgotten. I saw the most beautiful person I had ever seen in my life up to that point. And I'm sure the shame of the world had been so overwhelming in her life a time or two that she had to hide away to heal. But apparently every time she rose back up again because there she was singing Amazing Grace to me. And for the first time in my life, I 
knew who I was too. That didn't mean that shame would never come. Shame came, shame comes, and it will come again, and shame might castrate me, strip me, play games with my personhood. Shame might spit on me or mock me or do its best to redefine me, but when it does, you know what I hear now? Abide in Jericho. The Trinity whispers to me, Beloved, you have taken a legit hit. So come away with me behind the stone, and I'm going to roll it into place where it's private and secure and quiet, and we are going to get to work. And then after three days or three weeks or three months, however long it takes, we will rise up because shame, as fierce as it is, has no victory in the cleft of the ruins of the rock where our true identity is woven into God's story. Go to Jericho. Hide away to heal, but then come home. Then do what? Come home. Because there's good works to do. So many good works that flow from who we are. The chosen, holy, beloved body of Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.